Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action upon our oath do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. This is Episode 29, State of Maryland versus James Allen Kolbicki. Kolbicki, a former Baltimore City Police Sergeant, is being held without bail pending his third trial on first-degree murder and use of a handgun to commit a crime of violence. In 1993, Kolbicki was accused of shooting his former girlfriend, Gina Marie Nolson in the head. Kobiki's affair with the young woman resulted in the birth of her son, Michael, and a child support case against Kobiki. We'll talk about the evidence linking Kobiki to Gina's murder, his two trials, and the post-conviction process that began in 1994 after his first trial. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989 And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. I'm hoping uh, for our three viewers we got so far here that you guys can hear me on the live stream. We're trying a little bit of a simulcast here tonight. Uh, Feel free to comment if you are watching on Facebook or YouTube. You can always feel free to comment your questions or call in 347-989-1171. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share the video, all that good stuff so we can get the Clear and Convincing podcast out there. But with that being said, I'm doing pretty good. How about you this week, Lisa? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, I was just uh, – you caught me by surprise because I was trying to find out who President Trump had pardoned. ha. <laughs> I knew that. I, um, uh, I haven't actually seen. I, I know yesterday that he was looking at uh, he was looking at uh, pardoning a uh, hundred people today, but I haven't seen any list, so to speak, of people that he did pardon. So it would cer- certainly be something to keep an eye on because you know the first thought I had was Rodney Reed because of the issues he's had with uh, 
the issues he's had with, uh, or the uh, the issues he's had uh, with Kim trying to uh, make sure to advocate for Rodney and get him off of death row. But I believe you even said that uh, the president can't do anything with a uh, with a death row inmate of the state. He can only do something federally, which actually uh, I was going to bring up here in the opening segment of our show. Uh, this is going to be our first transition into a new administration since we started this show. So, Lisa, uh, I know you said the answer is pretty simple, but go ahead and walk our uh, walk our viewers and our listeners through what exactly we can expect uh, with this transition, especially with some of the cases we've uh, gone over. You know, some of these death penalties. Uh, obviously, we know the the uh, obviously we know the. Supreme Court is still uh, trending towards the Republican side of things, but how will a President Biden affect the justice system, do you expect? He will not have any effect on the system at the state level uh, because there is separation of powers between the federal and the individual state governments. That's why President Trump could not pardon Rodney Reed. He could not pardon. He could not pardon Stephen Avery. He could not pardon Brendan Dassey. He could not pardon Scott Peterson, et cetera, et cetera. He is a federal mm-hmm. president. Uh, state prisoners, the only entity with power to pardon or grant them clemency, is their state governor. Okay. Okay. Um, and now, usually you have to apply and you ha- you for, to apply for a pardon you really have to um in most cases especially fe- in including federal you have to complete your sentence. Okay. A pardon is okay. not parole or probation. A pardon is basically putting you back to the position you were in prior to committing a crime and being charged. And convicted. So that actually it's kind of wiping your another, slate clean. That kind of brings up another thing I was thinking about, though. Um, you're talking about pardon, pardons, and there's been a lot of controversy over whether the president could pardon himself um, for potential, you know, future indictments and things at a federal level. Um, the way you made it sound, it sounds like it wouldn't even hold up if he did pardon himself. Uh, well, I I think in order, yeah, I think in order to pardon, I, you know, I'm I'm getting I'm getting very very tired of the advocacy journalism of the current times, um, mm-hmm. and I, it because it's in some in some ways it is very intelligent people who are being blatantly dishonest and they know they're being blatantly dishonest. I don't think President Trump could pardon himself when he hasn't been charged with a crime. Now, he may have the power to, for example, if someone is facing criminal charges, he probably would have the power to go in and say, nope, I'm going to pardon him. And he's not going to face those charges, and his slate's going to be wiped clean. But generally, it's for people who have completed their and prior presidents. Most of the pardons have been people who have been convicted, served their time, completed their sentences, and have asked the president 
to now put them back to where they were before. Okay. Now, obviously, I don't want to take up too much time with this because this is obviously delving into politics a little bit. But real quick, on a federal level, as far as these federal executions we've seen under President Donald Trump that has uh, began again, um, I believe actually the last one just occurred last Sunday, I want to say. Maybe it was yesterday. But um, a gentleman, the last gentleman was put to death. Do you expect those to continue under President Biden? Is there anything that – it, his uh, transition would necessarily change from those continuing. Well, President Biden has has said he's against he was against it, but I'm wondering how much that was simply being against it because Donald Trump was for it. Okay. Um, I think that actually the the uh, the U.S. Attorney General is the person who decides whether to begin the process of carrying out an execution. And it depends on whether or not the condemned prisoner has completed his review process, uh, both direct appeal and post-conviction. And when you're in the federal system, you only have federal habeas. Um, But... I I don't know. He there may not be any federal execution set because I would imagine he would appoint a like-minded attorney general. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But you don't know. You he may appoint someone who is as law and order as William Barr was, and okay. that attorney general may say, "Look, there's no reason not to." not to carry these out. So long answer short, essentially what we're saying here, it sounds like is that on a state level, absolutely nothing's going to change on a federal Correct. level. They're making minor changes depending on who the attorney general will be in the new administration. Correct. Correct. And you know, you got to remember Joe Biden is a career politician Right. So what he says in his platform is not necessarily how he is going to carry out the duties of his office. Okay. Absolutely. I can certainly understand that. Okay. Well, so I just kind of he, wanted to go through that because this is our first transition presidentially since we've been on the air. So I kind of wanted to go through that as well. Right. Right. But I mean, you know, we it, it remains to be seen. Um, the the interesting thing will will be the that we now have apparently a Democratic House and Democratic Senate. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, what, As of I believe noon tomorrow. What craziness will ensue from that development? Who knows? Right. True. True. <clears throat> And once again, you know, if you have any questions for Lisa as we go through, you can always feel free to call in 347-989-1171, or you can now comment below. We'll show your comment on the screen, and I will uh, let Lisa know that you commented, and uh, we'll do our best to answer any questions you guys may have. Great. Are we ready to get started? Let's get into the meat and taters, Lisa. Okay. 
So uh, this case uh, originated in 1993, and there is unfortunately uh, very little independent information out there available about the perpetrator and the uh, victim in this case. So uh, we won't be we won't have as much background tonight as we we do on some of these cases. Okay. Uh, we'll start with James Allen Kubicki. Uh He's from Baltimore uh, in Maryland. He was born September 18, 1956. He became a Baltimore City police officer. Uh, and at the time of this uh, events in this case, he was a sergeant. He also did a lot of side jobs in construction. And different, you know, remodeling, construction type work, which tells me that the salary of a even a police sergeant in Baltimore City was not that great. Hmm. Okay. And in order to live, and his wife worked, you know, in order to live a a higher standard of living. He had to have multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Gina Marie Nielsen, Nuslin, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce uh, this last name. Going by my German, it would be Neuslin, but um, I think they pronounced it Nuslin. She mm-hmm. was born. May 15, 1970, also in Baltimore, uh, was raised in Baltimore. I get a sense that school was not really her thing because by the time she was 16, she was working an overnight shift as a waitress at a diner-style restaurant in uh, her neighborhood in Baltimore called Horn and Horn. Okay. Uh, It may also have been that her family, to help support the family, um, she left school and and went to work. Um, The circumstances of that are are not clear. It was at that restaurant that she met Kobiki. Mm -hmm. And then later she went to work for a convenience store chain called Royal Farms, which is a local Baltimore Chain is kind of like the Wawas in 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 Pennsylvania and Delaware, and the Time Savers in New Orleans. The um, damn it, what is the name of the stores in Arkansas? Uh, if it's like Wawa, then here I guess the uh, best comparison would be something like Seven uh, Eleven. Flash Market. Flash yeah, Market. Flash Market. True. Flash Market. <laughs> I couldn't remember. For my, here, for my southern friends here who don't know what Wawa is, you're missing out. Wawa is amazing. Uh, it's only in the yeah. northeast, but it is epic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, my family being from that area, um, I love the Wawa. So. Uh, 
it was about that time. Now, this is where I'm a little skeptical. Frankly, I don't believe that a 30-something-year-old man would befriend a 16-year-old girl and just be friends um, without something more going on. There may not have been anything illegal going on, uh, nothing that would be in the the statutory uh, chapters of the criminal code, but I don't think that they were just buddies. Yeah, right. You can't prove anything. And um, I I frankly don't believe that there was nothing that would, would have, you know, put him in violation of the statutory uh, criminal code, um, frankly. But this story that Gina and Kobiki told, um, and I think the story as far as her family knew, was that they did not begin an affair until she was 19. Okay. But let's establish a few parameters. First of all, Kobiki lied to her the entire time because he told her, that he was divorced or getting a divorce and living with his brother, which was oh, not wow. true. He was still living with his wife and his child so and his stepson. So, um, you know, let's get that clear. So he, oh, so she believed, right yeah. Um, so she believed that he was an available single man. Okay. She did not, she did not know that he was still married. She didn't mm-hmm. know his wife. She didn't know his family background. She may not have even known he had a child and a stepson. You know, he's a liar. And I'm just going to put that out there. He is a liar. Okay. Um, and we'll see, we'll see the depths to which he's willing to, to sink. Um, later on so Mm -hmm. after around late the winter spring of 1990 1991 Gina was pregnant okay when she told Kobiki first of all he did the the real bastard move of saying is it mine um (laughs) And then he pressured Gina to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not only is he a bastard, but he's a lazy bastard. Because <laughs> right. he just wants the solution that's going to keep his life from imploding. And I think this sure. is all control and covering his ass. And keeping oh, his right. ass out of trouble. This isn't concern for Gina. This is, he didn't give two shits about Gina. He never did. He never would. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's just a selfish, self-centered, controlling, jerk-off asshole. Right. He's a douche. Um, so Gina did not. She refused to end her pregnancy and in September of 1991 her son Michael was born 
Kobeki's son, Michael, was born. Um, mm-hmm. The relationship kind of ended while she was pregnant and after Michael was born. And then in the fall or winter of 1992, Gina filed a support petition in Baltimore County. Now, she may have had to do that because she was seeking Medicaid benefits for Michael's medical care. Okay. Um, in most states, if you if you get any kind of age-dependent children, Medicaid, medical benefits, the state enforces support from the father. Right. And the state will, I mean, the state will go, It's a, it was a state attorney prosecuting this case or, or state attorney handling the case with Gina. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have to go get a private attorney mm-hmm. to do this. Um, right. So, but like I said, she she may have had to do that because she was getting Medicaid benefits from for Michael. Now, Kobiki with with uh with health insurance through the police department, he could have added Michael to his plan, although it was going to cost him. Mm-hmm. Because most health insurance plans it, it costs extra to cover your dependents. Now, right. maybe city city plans, state plans may have been different, but I know in my entire career, whenever dependent coverage is offered, it costs something. It's mm-hmm. not exorbitant amounts, but it's something. Uh, and it's usually something per dependent. Right. So, um, and that pretty much from the time she instituted the action, Kobiki was putting pressure on her to drop it. And again, she may not have had a choice. Um, although I I think that she also wanted him to help her care for Michael. Right. I mean, reasonably so. I think as a, thought, as a child would probably rather have the uh, actual physical support than the monetary support. Correct. And, you know, you got to remember, too, Kobiki was denying even having sex with Jeannie. He was denying that Michael was his child. He was telling everybody who, was, who would listen that he never had sex with Gina. Well, to be fair. That they were just to friends. To be fair, now, Lisa, if you, if you started hollering at a, at a girl when she was 16 years old and you knew it was illegal, you're probably going to deny any wrongdoing anyway. So, I mean... Well, by this time, she was over 18. Right. I mean, she turned 18 in 1988. Okay. And this is three years later. Okay. So, um, you know, she was 21. I think Michael, yeah, Michael was born when she was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, so they apparently started the relationship again. And around October of 92, Gina was pregnant again. Mm-hmm. But this time she did end that pregnancy. Okay. Um, that may have I'm been a realization that she pregnancy. couldn't care for two kids. It may have been the pressure 
that Kobicki was putting on her over the support case with Michael. Um, and it, it may have also simply been the fact that she didn't want to, you know, disappoint her parents with having gotten pregnant again by the same asshole. Right. Because um, her parents didn't times. like Kobicki. Yeah. Right. So, um, and also around this time, the relationship is rocky, ending, in limbo. Um, she's met another officer, a younger, a younger guy, more appropriate for her. Uh, but he's also now, a police officer in Baltimore City. Kolbicki's jealous. Is this Kolbicki? And Kolbicki starts stalking her and threatening her. I think he was. I think he worked in the same department. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I think Kobiki could have maybe jammed him up. I don't think Kobiki was really a direct supervisor. There was a potential that Kobiki could jam him up, but, but he didn't. It wasn't like he was his training officer or he was his shift commander or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the Baltimore City Police Department is relatively large. And the guy could have maybe even solved the problem by transferring to another district. Right. But uh, but Kobiki started stalking Gina, and he was threatening her, and he was you know trying to get her to drop the support thing, which I think was control. And he says, oh, I had no problem with that. I just needed an order from the court to put the kid on my health insurance. And I had no problem with that, and I had the money, and I was ready to pay it. But if that were the case, you wouldn't need the court to intervene. From the day Michael was born, you would have been given Gina money for diapers and clothes and food. And you would have, you know, been there and signed the birth certificate and then taken that to your health insurance and said, this is my child. But you want to cover your ass. So you didn't do those things. Right. Um, So don't tell me you're a family person because you're not. Right. You're only a family man when it suits you. Who the hell hell Um, is threatening and stalking text messages and then going to go back and be like, well, I just – I just wanted to put. Oh no no no! The, the these fuck? weren't text messages. I mean, he was sitting. He was sitting outside the convenience store where Gina worked. Yeah, for you, we're ninety three. There's no. Such or thing parking outside her house. Right. And she was afraid. Right. Because when when her you know when her sisters or her mother said, "I saw Jimmy's truck." Outside, she would turn white as a ghost. Uh, yeah. Um, so he was, I think he was putting a lot of pressure on her to drop the support action. And he was probably trying to say, look, I'll help. I'll do this. I'll do that. Just drop it. I don't want to, I don't want to go forward with this. I don't want this. I don't need to be forced to do this. Right. I don't need to be in but the force. I can do it myself. He may have been, he may have also made those promises before. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'll help, and then he doesn't. Well, so. yeah, absolutely. That's play number one out of the deadbeat dad playbook. 
oh, we don't need to get the courts involved. Right. So the support action um, basically was still going on. Um, there was a, a first DNA test that was done by the city lab set up by the you know Baltimore courts to handle paternity issues. And the results of that testing were 99.8% that Kobicki was the father of Michael. He claimed he didn't trust that because his blood and Gina's blood weren't drawn at the same time. So there was a potential for some tampering. Well, uh, you know, that one, that makes no sense because it's not really Gina's, it's a child. Oh, my God. And, you know... I'd like to know if your blood wasn't drawn at the same time as hers, were you supposed to be there and you didn't show up? Maybe. Because I could, that'd be my first guess. Um, So he demanded a second test and he was going to pay for a second test. $800 plus to Johns Hopkins for a second paternity test. Mm Mm-hmm. And the result of that one was 99.8%. And I suspect that was when his wife found out that he had a child with Gina Newsland. And that, I I suspect, suspect is when his wife found out about Gina. I suspect that they should have just saved all this money and went to Maury. Shit, he could have told them. (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, Maury. I think Maury was around, although he may not have been doing paternity at that time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> but uh yeah um so that was 99.8%. Well, after that second test and that result, the court was a bit perturbed with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And a hearing had been set for January 13th, 1993. Okay. There are different sources one source, which is in uh, one of the court opinions, was that it was at that hearing that the child support and back child support from the day Michael was born were going to be set. Okay. But I also found a reference that said Kobiki had been ordered to bring a check in the amount of more than $3,000 to that hearing on January 13th, 1993, because at a minimum, his back support obligation was going to be more than $3,000. Is that standard practice? Can they do that? They can do that. Correct. They can do that. If you are, especially when you demand multiple paternity tests, even when the first paternity test is a conclusive result. Lisa, I got 99.8% for you. is conclusive. I got yes. a question here from me from Aaron on YouTube, and I don't see it covered in the outline, so I'm going to ask you. He says, I'm pretty sure this was a uh, Lifetime movie based on this crime. It sounds really familiar. Do you know anything about a Lifetime movie? That is correct. There is a Lifetime oh, movie called Victim of the Night, and it was rebranded Double Jeopardy. 
There was also a true crime book that I read many, many years ago. And it's the true crime book is so old that it doesn't show up on Amazon. Okay. And it doesn't show up in internet searches. But yes, there is a Lifetime movie and you can watch that movie on YouTube. It sh- it stars Joe Penny. Mm-hmm. Who... Uh, people in my generation will remember from a show called Riptide and uh, the late Brittany Murphy. Oh, shit, Brittany Murphy. Now, interestingly, they also changed the names. I think it was produced and aired at around the time of Kolbiki's second trial. And so they had to change the name. Except uh, Brittany Murphy's character's last name is Newslin, but her first name is Julia. Mm-hmm. Instead of Gina. Okay. So, yes, uh, he is correct. There is a movie. So, the hearing is going to go forward on, on January 13th, 1993. On January 8th, 1993. Kolbicki in his black pickup truck drops Gina off at work at a, at the Royal mm-hmm. Farm store, which is about six tenths of a mile from her home. Uh, right. It's wintertime in Baltimore. I think it was pretty snowy, pretty cold. Um, she's upset and has a mark on her face that looks like a handprint. Okay. Like someone either struck her or grabbed her face. She doesn't want to talk about it. There's no detail. She doesn't offer any kind of outcry or or any information about what happened. But if she gets out of his truck looking like that and upset, I'm going to say circumstantial evidence says Kolbicki is the person who upset her and accosted her. And more likely than not, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, he wanted her to drop the support. Right, case. right. I mean, and she said no. Sense. Did she did did she ever pursue anything with that, or was that ever followed up on, or no? Did, that just no. She did not. She never. Even though there were suspicions on the part of I think her family of perhaps some abusive. Uh, aspects in their relationship and right. there are some you know there's some evidence that Kolbicki was a controlling person mm-hmm. in relationships with women um, she didn't and more likely than not she wouldn't because she wouldn't want to jeopardize his career as a police officer okay and probably he had her convinced the way he probably had his wife convinced that they their actions made him act that way. I wish this guy had met my mom because my mom would have smacked him upside the head with frying pan. Right. I wish I'd met him because he put his hands on me. That would have been his ass. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I mean, 
So, I, I mean, but you know, we say we say this all the time when we talk about Nicole and OJ. You know, I was just sitting here thinking about how much this sounds like Nicole and OJ. You know, you mentioned right. that she didn't want to affect his career. Nicole didn't want to mess with OJ's. You know, physical mm-hmm. intimidation, all this stuff. It, it, it all reads out of the same playbook. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And again, you know, that's there's the psychological as well. Right. Men convince the woman that it's her behavior that is forcing them to react rather than their actions actions simply being unacceptable on any level. Mhm. So so uh, January 9th, um, after work, Gina goes home. She sees Kobiki again hanging out in his truck outside her house. Um, she's worried. She's frightened. But, again, there's not really an outcry from her as to what he's doing, what's going on. He's stalking me. He's threatening me. He's told me he's going to kill me. You know, she doesn't tell anybody, and more likely than not, she didn't want to worry her family. She lived with her parents, and I believe she lived with her parents and her two sisters and her son. And right. I, I think she didn't want to, you know, upset anybody in the house. I didn't. I think she didn't want him to worry. Perhaps, uh, perhaps she didn't want to hear "I told you so" mm-hmm. from her mom and dad, who knew that this was not the right guy. Right. For her. So uh, January 9th, Gina leaves for work at about 3.30 p.m. She's going to walk to work, which is, like I said, about six-tenths of a mile away. Uh, Around 4.30 or so, she was supposed to be at work at 4 o'clock. At 4.30, somebody at Royal Farms calls her mother and lets them know that she didn't arrive at work, which is unusual. Gina was a very prompt, very punctual employee, a reliable employee. Um, you know, she took her, her job very seriously, and supporting herself and her son and helping to support her family was very important for her. Right. So uh, about 11 o'clock, 11.30 that night, when they don't hear from her, they're not able to find her, they call everybody they can call, and nobody knows where she is. Uh, Gina's mother reports her missing with the Baltimore City Police. Right. Um, there. Uh, now, her family may have talked to Kobiki. Hmm. Is there much that they can do there? Because don't you have to wait 24 hours before you can officially, with somebody over 18, officially file anything? Well, it it varies from department jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Okay. Um, and Gina's family had some connections with the Baltimore City mm-hmm. Police. Okay, so they and got they, they so got the hookup. They may have been able to get, and not necessarily official inquiries, but they may have had a few boots on the ground trying to find her and. Her family may have talked to Kobiki, who simply lied and said, I haven't right. seen her. I don't know where she is. Last time I saw her was last 
yesterday afternoon when I dropped her off at work. Um, the morning of January 10th at 8 o'clock a.m., a man walking his dog at the archery field at Gunpowder State Park in Baltimore, I think it's like in the northeast Baltimore, uh, found a young woman's body. Uh, it appeared that the woman had been shot in the head and it appeared that her body had been dragged to the location where it was found. Uh, they also knew that she had been dumped there because there was no blood casings, bone, or other other evidence that suggested that she had been shot where she'd been found. Um, her relative came to the park and is the one who was able to identify her. And her parents were notified. And then about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, detectives arrived to question Kolbicki at his home. And he lies. He lies through his teeth. He says, I knew her, we were good friends, but we never had sex. When they bring up the paternity testing on Gina's son, Michael, he says, well, I don't trust that genetic testing because she and I are both Polish. Of course, we're going to have this. Or we're both Slavic. We're both going to have the same genetic. It's like, dude, the you're a police officer, and that's not even how paternity testing works. This paternity testing ever- doesn't look at your fucking ethnic background. It looks at the genes passed by mommy and daddy to baby. This dude is this dude is like trying every little tiny thing that he can to fucking wow. Okay. Correct. Correct. And then he lies about his alibi. Um he claims that he was at uh a job site, he claims he went to the shoemaker, he claims he went to the cleaner, um, and all of that was within the, you know, the the 3.30 to 4 time frame. But it turns out that the times that he's accounted for are actually all before 3.30 p.m. Okay. And he's in that general area, so he could very easily finish up all his crap and by 3.30 p.m. intercept Gina as she walks to Royal Farms. Okay. Um, and so the they, they question him. Uh, they get a warrant and they seize his truck. They, seize, they, they search his home and they seize mm-hmm. a jacket that he says is his. And they seize an off-duty 38 caliber uh, pistol. Okay. So the investigation, the truck has been seized, and when the uh, examiner goes to look at it, the outside is filthy. Outside hadn't been cleaned in months. But inside, it smells of cleaner and is immaculately clean, in some places, it is still wet. What a fucking moron. 
However, <laughs> in spite of his efforts, there are spots he couldn't get to. Oh, Jesus. And in those spots, like under bench seats, in a seat belt, like a well for a seat belt, mm-hmm. they find blood and bone fragments in the truck. Damn. They also find blood on the uh, one of the sleeves, the left sleeve, I believe, of Kobiki's work jacket. Mm-hmm. And on a holster for the weapon that they seized. Okay. So the first trial is in 1993 in October, uh, late September, early October, you know, somewhere around there. there. There's no, I didn't get a specific date except the date of the verdict. Um, the prosecution case, he's got motive because of the issue with the paternity testing, his resistance to uh, admitting to even having sex with Gina, um, and, you know, his lies about Michael's paternity um, and and his resistance to the, the support case um, means the you know the the bone and blood found in his truck show that something happened in that truck right absolutely right absolutely and then the opportunity while he you know thinks he has a solid alibi he really doesn't between 3:30 and 4:30 he has time to intercept Gina shoot her take her to gunpowder state park Drop, you know, dump her body and then go and clean his truck out. Lisa, Aaron Lisa, says, How is this scumbag not on death row? The death penalty is made for people like this. Well, it's actually, I don't believe Maryland had the death penalty at that time. Or Whoever was the Baltimore County attorney did not seek the death penalty. Okay. Okay. Uh, Because he was charged with first-degree murder and use of handgun to commit a violent crime. Um, So they had – they also had – the prosecution had a witness who had seen Kobiki in his black truck in Gunpowder State Park on January 9, 1993 – in that afternoon time frame. Um, they found they had the blood in the truck and the jacket, which serology and DNA testing at the time wasn't, it wasn't as definitive or conclusive as it would become later, but it didn't exclude Gina and did exclude Kobiki. So he couldn't say, well, I work construction, I cut myself all the time, I bleed, it must be mine. It excluded him and excluded his family. Okay. Um, then they had a, a basically a forensic anthropologist from the Smithsonian, or I don't know if he was a forensic anthropologist, he was, but he was from the Smithsonian. And he had determined, examining the bone fragments, that they were human, 
and that they were from a human skull and that they were um, in the condition that they were in as a result of a traumatic evulsion. And the medical examiner basically, you know, basically determined that um, Gina's, the wound to Gina's head was consistent with her being a passenger in a vehicle shot by the driver at close range, close contact gunshot wound. Um, They did some testing on the bone fragments. And again, they couldn't exclude Gina. They couldn't say conclusively that the the bone fragments were from Gina. But they couldn't exclude her. And they could exclude Kolbicki. Why why could why could they not definitively say that they were her bones? Because the DNA testing at that time was basically RFLP, and mm-hmm. it was required more material than they had. Ah, uh, okay. And I think there was some degradation as well. Just basically, you know, bone fragments. Yeah, I mean, think about where they're coming from. You mentioned yeah. in the in the uh, seatbelt. Well, I mean, yeah, of course, there's going to be degradation. That makes so sense, that you know, so okay. they couldn't. And RFLP, um, even in the under the best of circumstances, sometimes you couldn't develop full profile. And I think with the okay. with the testing that they were doing. At that time, they couldn't get a full profile, or they couldn't develop a full profile from the evidence. They could develop partial profiles, so they could only say, we can't exclude her. But they could exclude okay. Kobiki. Um, The defense was, of course, the alibi testimony. And then um, this is the thing that incenses me. And tells me that he's guilty, and you'll never mm-hmm. commit, convince me otherwise because an innocent person does not do what I'm about to tell you went down during Kolbicki's first trial. His okay. wife testified, and during her testimony, she managed to inform the jury that her son from a prior marriage, Daryl Marsuski, and I'm, I know I'm probably not pronouncing his name correctly, was very angry about the affair between Kolbicki and Gina. She also said that she couldn't remember, but her son could have been the one driving the truck on January 9th. And she said that everybody in the household had access to that jacket and wore that jacket. And her son could have been wearing it on January the 9th. Okay. So, um, and then there's a scene in the movie, and I don't have any any um, corroboration of it in any of the legal opinion from the first trial. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I believe that it might have happened. There may have been an attempt to actually fabricate. A diary that's that supported 
Daryl Marsuski killing Gina Nielsen. Oh, good Lord. That's pretty damn weak, um, by the way, on the whole, his son could have been wearing the jacket. That's pretty damn weak. So then Daryl comes to testify. And he's just going okay. to testify. I was really angry. I really hated her. She, you know, she was screwing up my mom's marriage. Um, I hated her. It was all her fault. It was terrible. Uh, but I don't remember where I was on the night. I could have killed her. Maybe. I don't know. Um, the when, the, when the prosecutor on cross-examination started asking him, uh, he was refusing to answer the questions. He was trying to, he was trying to basically say, Fifth Amendment, not going to incriminate myself, but the judge um, in Maryland and in some states, you have to be very careful. In some mm-hmm. states, you can assert the Fifth Amendment to specific questions and answer other questions. In okay. other states, and Arkansas is one of them, and Maryland may be another, if you're going to assert the Fifth Amendment, you have to do it to every question that you're asked. Essentially, basically meaning you don't get in, get up and testify in front of a jury. Right. You don't get to pick and choose. Right. Exactly. Um, so the ju- the judge basically said, if you don't answer the question, it was a direct question, did you kill her? And he didn't want to answer it. And the judge said, I'm going to find you in contempt if you won't answer it. So he finally had to admit that he didn't kill her. Okay. Um, so the state, after that performance, the state could have let it go because I think the jury had gotten a good enough idea about what kind of people these three were. Right. But the state went one step further. They had coworkers of Daryl who had apparently Daryl had made statements to. And so they brought the coworkers in to testify about Daryl's statements. And essentially Daryl's statements were to the effect that he and his father and his mother had worked out this scheme or rather not, he didn't say my father. He said, we worked out this scheme. I'm going to say I killed her at his trial to create reasonable doubt, then he'll be acquitted. And then when I'm on trial, he's going to come forward and he's going to admit to killing her. And then I'm going to be acquitted. (laughs) And when one of the girls said, but aren't you worried about them just trying him again once he admits it? He said, well, he can't be tried again if he's acquitted because it's double jeopardy. Um, These hairbrained Yeah, well, the the worst, the saddest part about this is that the judge in that first trial would not let Kolbicki testify in Sir Rebuttal after the state put on these witnesses. And personally, I think he should have, because if Kolbicki had gotten up and testified, I had nothing to do with it. My wife came up with this. My stepson came up with this. This wasn't my idea. I didn't want to do this. I don't want to fool you. He would have looked like the big asshole that he is. Right. And the jury would have still convicted him. 
Right. Because he basically would have been looking like he's just trying to save his own ass. And a person who's just thinking about saving their own ass is the kind of person that can take a gun and put it up against a 22-year-old woman's head and pull the trigger when he doesn't want to pay child support or he doesn't want a court to order him to pay child support. So he was found guilty, and he was sentenced in January of 1994 to life without parole plus a consecutive sentence of 20 years on the handgun charge. Now, Mm -hmm. the case goes to direct appeal, and in Maryland, the intermediate court is called the Court of Special Appeals. Right. And the highest state court is called the Court of Appeal. In, In Louisiana, the intermediate is the Court of Appeal, and the highest state court is the Supreme Court. Okay. In Arkansas, you have intermediate courts of appeal, and then you have Arkansas Supreme Court. But Maryland is a little different. So the Court of Special Appeal is the intermediate court of appeal. On December 1st, 1994, the Court of Special Appeals reversed Kolbicki's conviction and sentence because they found that it was error not to allow Kolbicki to testify and serve rebuttal. Even though the statements reported by the witnesses on rebuttal were not purportedly from Kolbicki, they felt they rendered his trial unfair because he wasn't able to address them. And again, personally, I think, it's my opinion, that had he been allowed to just get up there and testify, that conviction would have stuck. Uh, Because he would not have, it would not have made a good impression on the jury. He may think he's slick, but the jury's verdict of guilty would have disabused him of that fantasy um, very quickly. So the case went back to the trial court in Baltimore County for his second trial, which was same charge as a first-degree murder and use of a handgun to commit a crime of violence. The prosecution had the same motive, means, and opportunity evidence. They had the witness placing Kobiki in the park on, on January 9th, 1993. They had the blood and bone, and they may have had slightly better DNA and serology. Um, the appeal on the second case is unreported. And so um, I can only go by what is reported in subsequent opinions as having been at the second trial. Okay. Um, and then the state also at the 1995 trial brought in a gentleman uh, by the name of Peel from the Federal Bureau of Investigation regarding uh, comparative bullet lead analysis called CBLA. And basically, he looked at the lead composition of the bullet fragments found 
at autopsy as well as in Kolbicki's truck and the bullets that were found in that 38 pistol that was seized. And his testimony was that the, the composition of the fragments from the autopsy in the truck were indistinguishable from one another and that the two fragments could be from the same bullet. Um, while his testimony is later uh, embellished somewhat in argument by Kolbicki's advocates, his trial testimony was within the bounds at that time for proper terminology. He didn't say the two mm-hmm. fragments are definitely, without a doubt, you know, to the exclusion of all others, from the same bullet. He said they could be. Right. Or they were consistent with. But he didn't, he never right. definitively said that the, the fragments were the same bullet or that the bullets in the 38 were, you know, the same as the fragment. He never mm-hmm. said that in in the in the quotes that I found in the various opinions, he never said that. He was very circumspect and very careful in the way he portrayed it to the jury because the FBI during that time period was starting to understand that the language that their analysts use in testimony they had to be more careful right? because the FBI is a rubber stamp of reliability in and of itself. Right. So, um, you know, like I said, from what I have found of his testimony, he was not definitively testifying to anything. He was basically giving he was basically informing the jury of his analysis and his conclusions and opinions, but he wasn't saying that they were the only conclusions and opinions that you could draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also had ballistic testimony that linked the bullet fragments from autopsy and found in Kolbicki's truck to a 38 caliber weapon um, from a a state of Maryland uh, expert by the name of Copera. Okay. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So the defense again uh, went with alibi and put the witnesses on. I think one flaw was that some of Kobicki's testimony actually contradicted his alibi witnesses. Mm-hmm. And then they tried to blame the victim. I, I, I think they 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 tried to put on witnesses to give the impression that Gina was like a party girl and sleeping around with every every cop on in, you know in the district. And so it could have been anybody who shot her and killed her. Even no, though it's only one person who's been named in a paternity suit. It's only Mm -hmm. one person from whom she's seeking child support 
and insurance for her child and his child. And it's only one truck that's found to have blood either belonging to Gina Nielsen or consistent with Gina Nielsen's types, genetic profile, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this is something that is Kobiki's truck. Interestingly enough, they didn't try the double jeopardy gambit at the second trial. Which I think shows you that they know that that wasn't going to work anyway. Right. Um, So in on November 22nd, 1995, the jury in that case found Kolbicki guilty again. And on December 18th, 1995, he was sentenced to once again, life without parole plus 20 years on the gun charge. And that's, I believe consecutive. Okay. So he won't begin to serve that sentence until the life without parole. So if there's ever, you know, a, a, a an assignment of life without parole means 25 years, then, you know, he's got to serve that before they'll start counting against the 20 years that he has on the gun car on the gun charge. Um, He filed a motion to modify his sentence, although I'm not sure what the grounds on that would have been, and that was denied by the trial court. So then it goes to direct appeal. Uh, The Court of Special Appeals affirmed the verdict, the guilt, the the conviction sentence on December 20, 1996, and uh, Kolbicki's writ to the Court of Appeal was denied on April 9, 1997. So at that point, his conviction became final. Mm -hmm. Then he went into the state post-conviction process. He initially filed a state post-conviction petition in March of 97, but he pretty much, uh, it was kind of um, basic, and the claims that he eventually raised were actually not even brought in until 2006, 2007. Okay. Um, essentially, he had a public defender's office or Maryland Innocence Project or some uh entity, pro bono entity, looking at his case. And that kind of started the ball rolling. In 2006, in the Maryland case, the CBLA was found to be unreliable and no longer admissible. Now, that process started the FBI's Somebody retired from the FBI and decided that the examiners at the FBI were doing it wrong. And so he and some other uh, metallurgists got together and did their own papers and they tore down CBLA. And then the FBI had a research entity look at CBLA and they said, oh, God, it's horrible. We can't use it anymore. 
And, um, you know, I think it's really kind of unfair to look at something like that in hindsight and misrepresent what it was and what it was meant to do to fit some agenda. And that's what I perceive this to be. I mean, okay. you can say now it's not reliable and it's not scientific and it's no longer admissible, but to go back and then invalidate prior convictions based on that rather than looking at the testimony about CBLA that the jury heard to determine whether the jury could have been misled or confused about CBLA real quick is not right real quick Aaron chimed in here in the comment section how does life without parole equal 25 years I'm curious well in different places um, like in Texas there is no life without parole so if if the Maryland state legislature next year was very progressive and decided, you know what, life without parole is horrible. We don't have the death penalty anymore. We don't need to be locking people up in prison with no hope. We're going to abolish life without parole. Anybody sentenced to life without parole is now eligible for parole after 30 years or after 40 years. You know, they can set a time. In Texas, life is 38 years. Right, that makes sense. For crimes that occurred when they didn't have a life without parole. Um, Or it could be a court saying, okay, you know what, life without parole is not fair, um, so I'm going to say we can't do it, and or this guy doesn't deserve life without parole, and so I'm going to commute a sentence to life. So that means life could be, you got to serve at least 40 years and then you can get out. And that was just an arbitrary random number that came up in my head, Aaron. I'm sorry. Right. Oh, you're <laughs> fine. I'm sure I'm sure he just kind of got thrown off by that number. He actually commented and said thank you for explaining. So you're welcome, Aaron. Thank you. All right. So they also began investigating uh, Mr. Capera because apparently when they – looked at his testimony across many cases over many, many years. They found that there were inconsistencies in his testimony regarding his education. Uh They went and interviewed Mr. Capera and questioned him. And apparently he produced a transcript that he represented as being a part of his personnel file. Right. And unfortunately, they, I guess, obtained a copy of his personnel file because I think he had retired by that time um, or had been forced to retire when the questions started coming. Um, And they determined that the transcript was a forgery and that the educational background that he testified to under oath was False. Um, And it's kind of, it's very odd because 
what he was testifying about as far as ballistics, there never has been and there never will be an educational tract at any university or college that would deal with ballistics. He claimed to have an engineering degree that he didn't have, um, but even an engineering degree is not something you need for ballistics. Ballistics is almost entirely hands-on, on-the-job, case-by-case experience. Um, so it's kind of mystifying as to why he would lie about that aspect of his life. Right. Um, but it was pretty clearly determined that he had. And unfortunately, uh, when I think when the credentials, the forgery of the credentials were discovered, he committed suicide, Mr. Capara. So we can never ask Mr. Capara why he did what he did to explain why he did what he did. Also, at some point, they also apparently discovered bench notes. And uh, I've seen this in a lot of cases, and um, it's really, it's one of my least favorite aspects. It involves people finding notes, usually with poor handwriting, and trying to A, decipher those notes, and then B, extrapolating and interpreting what the author of the notes meant, thought, intended in those notes. Uh, And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's also finding notes and not acknowledging later notes or a report that demonstrate that the author of the note re-examined or found additional information that led to a change. Um, We see it a lot in gunshot cases where a medical examiner will put could be 45 caliber Mm -hmm. or could be 38 caliber. And we see it, I think, in the Mumia Abu-Jamal case, and we see it in Philip Workman if we ever actually look at Philip Workman, where (laughs) someone will find this single note and say, the medical examiner thought the ballistic was, the caliber was this, and my client had a different caliber. So the medical examiner says the cause of death was not what he testified to at trial. He lied, he lied, he lied. And that's right. not generally how it is. I mean, you know, he may be, and when when the medical examiner is then dead for a decade, and you can't say, do you remember making this note? What, what, what did you base this note on? You know, were you looking at a bullet fragment? Were you looking at an entry wound? Were you looking at an exit wound? Um, you know, what 
what were your parameters? What were your criteria for making this note? And you can't do that when they're deceased. And unfortunately, sometimes you can't do that if it's been 10 or 15 years since they made the note. They may not remember. And if they don't have an independent recollection, they can't testify to it. So, but yeah, this is, um, I think they found notes from Capera that shed doubt on whether or not the fragments actually had the characteristics that he claimed they had, um, whether they had characteristic characteristics consistent with that 38 caliber weapon, you know, those kind of things. There was a hearing in April of 2007, I believe. And in January of 2008, the trial court denied Kobiki relief. While the allegations regarding the unreliability of CBLA testimony, while the court found that troubling, basically that was not the only testimony at Kobiki's trial. Uh, and even without that testimony, the court found that the outcome would not have been any different. Right. Um, the court also had found that Copera, while Copera did lie and there was no getting around it, what Copera lied about was not material to his testimony related to the ballistics. Mm-hmm. And uh, in... September of 2012, the Court of Special Appeals affirmed the trial court. Then Kolbicki's writ was accepted by the Court of Appeal, which then reversed and ordered a new trial in August of 2014. The basis for ordering that new trial, however, was an ineffective assistance of counsel finding basically saying that Kobiki's trial counsel should have found a 1991 article co-authored by Peel, a state witness, that could have been used in cross-examination to undermine the CBLA evidence. Mm -hmm. But the article didn't really undermine CBLA evidence. It It kind of exposed an analytical flaw in the methodology or Mm -hmm. potentially exposed an analytical flaw, but it didn't really say we're doing this wrong. We shouldn't be testifying about it. Um, You know, this isn't what we thought it was. And CBLA had been around for 30 years or more by the time of Kobiki Strong in 1995. And again, it was, you know, seen as a very, at the time, reliable, and interestingly enough as well, only the FBI did it. There were no independent experts out there that a defendant could hire to challenge CBLA testimony from an FBI agent at trial, which is Mm kind of sort of one of the other flaws 
that maybe um, show that it wasn't a great idea. But um, again, it was, you know, it was very limited. And as I said before, what I found quoting Mr. Peel's testimony was not misleading, was not conclusive. He was not saying anything was conclusive. He was not saying anything was definitive. He was being very careful to say it could be. And this is, you know, this is why it could be. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when it's on behalf of a defendant, Innocence Project stretches the bounds of incredulity. I didn't pronounce that correctly. Um, Because if it was a person, if they could use CBLA to show the state's case was wrong, they would use it. They would use it today. You know, they would examine those bullets and test the compositions and say, we can prove that that bullet did not come from my client's gun. Right. And you know they would, just like when they put Michael Bodden on at Rodney Reed's hearing. Mm-hmm. He... And, and, and I mean, he's going, and then he's going out on on interviews, and he and and Spitz and all these other experts are saying it's scientifically and medically impossible, right, for Roddy Reed to have killed Stacy Stites. But right. if a if a prosecution expert made any such statement on the record, off the record, in a phone call, the Innocence Project would tear that guy or girl a new one for saying anything is scientifically and medically impossible because you can't say anything's scientifically or medically impossible because you just never know. So, um, so then uh, the state of Maryland filed a writ at the United States Supreme Court and the um, basically argued that the grant of relief by the Court of Appeal was on a, an issue that hadn't been raised by Kobiki, that the article, in fact, did not undermine CBLA as it was at the time of the 1995 trial, that it was not under fire at the time of the 1991 trial, it hadn't been found to be inadmissible or unreliable, and that um, there was a question as to whether or not that article could have even been found in 1995. It was an FBI internal article, while the Court of Appeal apparently found some notation about some kind of distribution of the article in a compendium in 1994, it didn't show that it went to the Baltimore Public Library or the the Court of Appeal Legal Library or the Court of Special Appeals Legal Library or Baltimore County Legal Library or a law school or University of Maryland or any any resource that the attorneys for Colbicki could have used to research Mr. Peel. 
Um, Kobiki, of course, opposed the writ. Um, I didn't read the uh, the opposition. I just couldn't bear to read it because the factual description is, um, you know, that somebody was shot in 1993, and they blamed mm-hmm. Kobiki, who didn't do it. And that made me want to throw up. Um, so the U.S. Supreme Court granted the writ and summarily reversed the Court of Appeals decision on October 5th, 2015, basically finding that the Court of Appeal misapplied Strickland, which is the ineffective assistance or, or effective assistance of counsel uh, case law, and held Kolbicki's trial counsel to an impossible standard. Mm-hmm. So um, Kolbicki's conviction was then reinstated. And on December 17, 2015, the Court of Appeal uh, affirmed the Court of Special Appeals' denial of relief or the, the Court of Special Appeals' affirmation of the denial of relief at the trial court conviction, state post-conviction. But it wasn't over because Kolbicki is a persistent son of a gun. Or those representing him are persistent sons of guns. Um, Kolbicki's counsel filed a writ of actual innocence pursuant to Maryland Criminal Procedure Act Section 8-301. This was enacted in 2009 and became effective on October 1st, 2009. Um, basically, it provides a an avenue for people who are convicted to get back into court when they discover new evidence that they couldn't have discovered at the time of their trial that tends to prove innocence. And this is probably meant to be more along the lines of a DNA. So if you get test DNA testing under Maryland's statutes and you get a result that excludes you, then you file a writ of actual innocence under Mm -hmm. this procedure act. Because the criteria for the uh, 8-301 claim is the claimant must prove that the newly discovered evidence that creates a substantial or significant possibility that the result may have been different and that the evidence could not have been discovered in time to move for a new trial. The claimant must deny commission of the offense and the new evidence must point toward evidence of actual innocence. And this is where I see a flaw in this rate of actual innocence. Because the issues Kobiki raised are related to CBLA and Peel, which really come down to impeachment of that evidence potential impeachment of that evidence 
uh, potential undermining of that evidence. The CBLA or the absence of CBLA evidence from that trial does not exonerate Kolbicki because the absence of CBLA doesn't change the fact that the truck belonged to Kobiki, that blood was found in the truck, that the blood belonged to or at least did not exclude Gina, that bullet fragments were found in the, I mean, skull fragments were found in the truck. They were definitively identified as human and they were also identified, perhaps not conclusively, but more likely than not as coming from a human skull as a result of a gunshot wound. And there's other information. There was um, uh, soot and markers on the, on the fragments, the bone fragments, that were consistent with a gunshot wound. Okay. Um, so that doesn't establish Kobiki's actual innocence because it doesn't address those factors that are, you know, a link between Kobiki and the victim. They don't change the custody. I mean, not custody. They don't change the support case. They don't negate the support case. They don't negate Kobiki's resistance to the support case. Um, and then they also are, you know, the, the claims about Copera lying on his educational credentials. And, um, uh, again, that's impeaching of Copera's trial testimony. If his, if Colbicki's attorneys had known about it, um, they could have impeached him. Again, the ballistic evidence and weakening the ballistic evidence doesn't change the truck the blood in the truck, the bone fragments in the truck, the bullet fragment in the truck, the bullet fragment recovered from Gina, the location of Gina's body, all the events leading up to January 9th, 1993, none of that, does that doesn't exonerate Kulpicki. Right. Um, you know, and, and even, again, those things are as circumstantial as the truck, the blood, because those are all circumstantial. I mean, it was a circumstantial case other than the direct evidence placing Colbicki and his truck in Gunpowder State Park. That was direct evidence. But even that isn't direct evidence putting him with Gina's body. Um, so Kobiki at the same time, uh, pro se filed a protective claim in federal court under federal habeas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was ordered to amend and he raised the fact that he's pursuing the writ of innocence. Um, he filed a motion to have counsel appointed and he filed a motion to stay and obey the federal habeas proceedings. Those motions were denied by the district judge, and the suit was supposed to be dismissed without prejudice to refiling once 
his writ of actual innocence concluded. But for some reason, it kind of fell through the cracks. So um, in 2017 is when the judge ruled on the motion for counsel and the motion to stay and obey. And it's kind of been at a in limbo since that point. But in uh, January of 2020, the Court of Special Appeals granted Kalbicki's writ of actual innocence. The trial court denied relief. The Court of Special Appeals granted the writ of actual innocence. And I've read the opinion twice. Cannot understand how the Court of Special Appeals can rule that either the CBLA or Copera are evidence of actual innocence. Fuck in 2020. I also read in an article that apparently the state had done additional DNA testing and that may have mm-hmm. even been during the state post-conviction claims in 2007. And they actually were able to, with some of the blood or bone evidence, definitively identify it as having belonged to Gina. Mm-hmm. But Kobiki was successful in keeping that out of the writ of actual innocence. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so the Court of Appeal uh, denied review in April of 2020. So this is a first for our program. And I debated after I found this information out this afternoon from the Baltimore County State Attorney's Office. I debated even going forward with this tonight. Because right. as it stands right now, a new trial has been ordered for Joseph Kobicki. Mm-hmm. If you live in Baltimore County, Maryland, I would urge you not to listen to this show. Um, if you do listen to the show, disclose it if you end up being called to jury duty. Um, you know, don't don't sit on a jury of James Kalbicki if you formed a, a an immovable opinion about his guilt based on this program. I don't want right. to do that. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of history with the case, and I really, really, after taking so much time to prepare for it, I really wanted to see it through. I feel bad for Gina's family. Uh, her father died in 2019 but her mother's still alive. They've all relocated to Pennsylvania. Um, her son, Michael, is is there, uh, her sisters, um, because, you know, Gina was, I think Gina was the middle sister of three sisters. Mm-hmm. And in a kind of parallel to my family, Gina's the only one who had a child, although I know her sisters of each had children. So, but, uh, you know, in a parallel, Gina was the first, my sister was the first to have a kid. 
and it was the only son, and he's the apple of everybody's eye, and now his son is the apple of everyone's eye. So right. uh, Kolbeke is being held without bail because he does still face first-degree murder. There is no trial date as of January 19th, 2021, but he's facing a new trial. And hopefully, since he's appeared on Reasonable Doubt, uh, the ID channel program with Chris Anderson uh, and Melissa Lefkowitz, uh, Chris Anderson is former homicide detective with Birmingham uh, Metro Police. Um, Melissa Lefkowitz was a, a defense attorney. Um, she is no longer associated, but she was in the first season. He said if I did it, I would admit it. Hopefully, mm-hmm. with this third trial, he will go ahead and admit it. Right. There is no justice for Gina, though. And I'm I'm afraid that he'll admit it and get a freaking Alfred plea and get out of prison. Um, but hopefully, I I don't know if Baltimore County is going to do that. Um, I I hope that they don't. I hope that they take it to trial, and I hope that they have some definitive. I I believe they have definitive DNA evidence that is going to make it impossible for him to um, escape paying for the crime he committed. Right. You know, and the fact that he says, if I did it, I would admit it. No, you wouldn't. Because you know what? You had sex with Gina, and you got her pregnant, and she had a baby, and you didn't admit that was yours. Right, exactly. You wanted two DNA tests. You prick. Mm-hmm. You know, no, you're not the type that when you fuck up, you admit it. You're the type that when you fuck up, you try to hide it. You try to cover it up. Maybe you try to threaten the little girl to get her to back off. Because you're True. the man. Um. Oh, my God, I wish I could talk to this man because I would give him a piece of my freaking mind. <laughs> so, because um, I, you know, I mean, Gina's six years younger than I am. She would be turning 50 this year. Mm-hmm. Or she would have turned 50 in May. She would be turning 51 this year. You know, mm-hmm. she's... She's joined. She would have joined me and Lynn and Lee in the fifty, the women over fifty club. Right. We're tired of your shit, and we're not taking it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um, yeah. So I, I went ahead and did it. I hope that uh, I actually hope we don't have any Baltimore County listeners. Um. And like I said, due to COVID, there's no trial date set. I will probably keep in touch with the Baltimore County attorney or or check in on it every now and then um, to see if a trial is set or a plea. Because it's been a year since that was um, done. So that is... State of Maryland versus Kobiki. 
Nice, nice. Well, and certainly, uh, he goes on. He goes on my list of one of my least favorite defendants. I certainly can't wait till the trial gets underway, and maybe we can do some bonus content and cover the trial as it's going on and what have you. But yeah, no, that's you know, I would love to do that if we could if we could find a sponsor. That would enable me to leave my job and travel. <laughs> I would love to do that, but I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, but you know, I will. I, I will certainly. Uh, you know, if I if I can, I will report. Um. You know they had they had the trial. The other thing that that kind of worries me is, you know, what if the witness from the park who saw his truck in the park and him in the truck, what if she's gone now? Mm-hmm. Um, True. Uh, you know, and and it's weird on the reasonable doubt program they talked about her early statements to police talking about a totally different vehicle and different people. And then after she saw Kobiki on the news is when she suddenly identified it. But the version of the facts in the appellate opinions was that she basically saw something about a body being found in the park and contact the police right away. Mm-hmm. So, but even then, I mean, what she focused on or what she believed was relevant the first time she talked to police and seeing Kobiki on the news could have jogged her memory or right. made her associate, you know, made her associate something else that she also saw. You know, I, I, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't post or show the entire statement from beginning to end. Who's to say that she didn't also mention Kolbicki in his truck in that initial statement? True. It's just that at the time she gave that statement, she thought that a different vehicle and a different group of people were involved with Gina's death. And again, You would have to ask her. Let's ask her about her statement. And that's the thing that disappointed me with reasonable doubt is that they didn't they didn't contact her or reach out to her and try to talk to her about why why did you talk about this and not the the black truck and the guy that you waved at. Right. Good point. You know. Um, so, but I'm sure they, you know, the defense had her statement. The defense could have made whatever they wanted to make and probably did make whatever they wanted to make at the trials. They probably did say, well, why did you talk about this red car? And more likely than not, she probably explained it. True. You know, so, because a lot of times these quote issues that you see, in the media, in the news, on these, 
quote-unquote documentaries are issues that have been raised, have been addressed, and the proponents just don't like the result. So they're going to keep pushing the issue until they get the result they desire. Right. Very good point. Like the claims about not searching the apartment in the Rodney Reed case. Mm-hmm. You know, until they get the result they desire, which is, well, he Rodney Reed must be innocent if they didn't search the apartment, then they're going to continue pretending that nobody's ever heard that before. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in the Westminster 3 case. Insert stepfather's name of choice. <laughs> so, right. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, that's Maryland versus Kobiki. Heck yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead and put a bow on it and talk about what we're going to do next week. Next week sounds like it may get a little uh, a little heated, a little fun. I uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan, who's cackling in the background. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien O'Lan. Join us on Tuesday, January 26, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 30, State of Texas versus Rodney Reed. We'll be joined by David Fisher, a private consultant and advocate for Ronnie Reed, who's investigated the case and Reed's innocence claims. Mr. Fisher and I will discuss, debate some of his theories and assertions about the case and explore what, if any, evidence might support those claims. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.